So she showed me a picture of my wife. Her name is Gloria. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was in a bikini. And there were two pictures. One was a head-on shot, full body, and the other one was a side shot, full body. Mm-hmm. And um, with a nice, quote-unquote, bump on the back end. <laughs> so I said, sure, I'll meet her. What the heck? Mm-hmm. Anyway, so uh, Gloria comes out to uh, visit her friend, and I meet her. And six months later, I'm married. Welcome to episode two of the Thanks for the Memories podcast. I am your host, Raul. The song you just heard was Let the Good Times Roll by Louis Jordan. It was recorded in 1947, which is the year my next guest was born. From Southern California, I'd like to welcome Mr. Leonard Rivers. Leonard, welcome to the show. Thank you, Raul. How are you today? I am well. I am well. I'm inside staying away from the rain for a bit it started raining when i went out for the first five no. minutes <laughs> so i had a, Not again. to come back yeah yeah sunny southern california isn't sunny as much these days it seems like yeah this is uh really hurting our reputation as it ne- you know that it never rains in southern california yeah. thing you know right all these expensive housing and taxes that we pay we're we want some sunshine we don't want this rain anymore no how are real. You, how are you doing? Oh, I can't complain. Uh, as I told you earlier, I'm uh, just enjoying my Sunday afternoon. No one else is here but me. Okay. And a uh, 150-pound dog. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, my, my son has a, it's called a uh, Carne Corso. Oh. I, and that's, yeah. I don't think I've heard of that kind of a dog before. Yeah, it's a C-A-N-E, pronounced Carne, mm-hmm. and Corso, C-O-R-S-O. Mm-hmm. And it's a mastiff uh, breed. Uh, uh, yeah, but lovable, but kind of messy. If you've ever seen um, Beethoven or mm-hmm. Turner and Hoop, when they shake their heads, mm-hmm. uh, saliva flies all over the place. Right in there. <laughs> so, I know exactly That's what part of my life, about. these yeah, that's part of my life these days. <laughs> All right. Are you ready to get started? Sure. Go ahead. Awesome. Okay. So let's talk about where you were born and raised. Okay. Well, I was born, uh, as you said earlier, in 1947, which was about two years after uh, World War II. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was born on an island off the coast of Texas, about 50 miles from Houston. And it was called, uh, it still today is called Galveston Island. Ah. So Galveston, Texas. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, if you follow, if you look at a map that follows the uh, right side of the uh, Texas coastline, as you follow it up, you come to a little inlet where you'll see uh, a little cutout of water. Well, in between uh, that cutout of water is what separates Galveston from the Texas mainland. That's called Galveston Bay. Okay. Uh, my parents uh, were both Galvestonians, and we were all born at the same hospital uh, as the, over the years. Nice. Uh, they met uh, way back when, obviously, in around making, and uh, they. And um, that's where I grew up, uh, 18 years there. Mm-hmm. But in the process, uh, my mother and father, they went there. Mom wound up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Okay. And uh, my dad stayed in Texas. And uh, I preferred to stay there, too, because Milwaukee was just unbearable as mm-hmm. a kid in terms of the, the cold weather and stuff. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, walking to school, you know, three below, <laughs> no fun. That's, that's not fun at all. Uh, yeah, so I uh, I persuaded my parents to let me stay in Texas as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And um, this was back during the days of uh, segregation when I was born. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 1954 um, separate but equal thing uh, was... The first crack in the armor of, of uh, overt racism, in my opinion, uh-huh. in in America. So I grew up during that period, uh, I kindergarten all the way until um, I, I graduated as a high school senior. Uh-huh. I went to a segregated high school, and all the schools in Galveston were segregated. Uh, elementary, junior high, the whole thing. Uh, interesting thing about Galveston that um, some people probably know and, and some don't. Uh, you've heard, I'm sure, of the Emancipation Proclamation. Yes. Uh, Juneteenth. Uh, Juneteenth actually uh, was an outgrowth of the fact that the news of Emancipation Proclamation and I think uh, 1861 mm-hmm. finally reached Galveston, Texas, two years later in 1863. And um, for about two years, even though they were legally freed, um, people, many people in Texas and in the South still remained slaves mm-hmm. until that news reached, reached uh, Galveston. And uh, at that point, um, things got a little bit better. Uh-huh. Um, so raised in Galveston, uh, 1940s, 1950s, you mentioned about segregation. Um, the schools back then, elementary, junior high, and high school were all segregated? Uh, all throughout the entire uh, Texas, state of Texas, actually, for that matter. Okay. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, how did, how did you see that back then? Did you realize that you were uh, being segregated or was this something that just seemed natural to you and you didn't think uh, twice about it? Well, interesting. You should ask that. Um, I recall being about maybe four or five years old. I have a pretty good uh, memory as it relates to my early uh, years as a child, you know, from maybe I'm guessing about three years old, 
Wow. I have very, very vivid memories of that. Anyway, uh, on Galveston, Galveston is protected by a seawall. It's entire, well, over half of its entire length uh, facing the Gulf of Mexico. Mm -hmm. Galveston itself is about 39 miles long, but it's only two miles wide at its widest point. It used to be called Snake Island. Snake Island? S-N-A-K. Snake Island, because if you look at it on a map, it's just a strip of land, you know, um, uh, parallel to the Texas coastline. Okay. At any rate, um, that protected seawall is about 17 feet above the Gulf of Mexico, and you can look out over it. And uh, uh, along the shoreline, they've built uh, amusement parks back in the uh, 50s, 1950s. Mm-hmm. And uh, at nighttime, you could see the lights and the Ferris wheels and, you know, the the wild rides and roller coasters and everything. And I remember asking my dad, uh, could I go over there? I'm four years old at this time. Mm-hmm. And he says, no. Go, Why not? And he says, because you're colored. And uh, I didn't know what colored meant, really. And uh, he pointed out that it means you're not white. And I could not quite comprehend what not being white has to do with me going to go ride a Ferris wheel. But anyway, that was my introduction to racism. Uh, And my dad tried to explain it to me as best he could. And uh, from that point forward, I kind of became aware there's a difference between white and black uh, in the state of Texas. Uh, When I went to Milwaukee up north, uh, not so much. Mm-hmm. So I had two experiences with uh, American culture, the segregated kind and the integrated kind. Mm-hmm. Um, at any rate, um, one of my other vivid memories of being in Galveston and, and, and the racism uh, thing, I can remember walking uh, down the sidewalk with my grandmother and we're walking in the direction of a white lady walking toward us and she's about half a block away. And as we got closer, my grandmother grabbed my hand and we stepped off the uh, sidewalk into the street and the white lady walked on by us. And as after she did, and there was plenty of room for without doing that. Uh, But after she passed by, we stepped back up on the sidewalk and then I came to learn that that was sort of the uh, thing to do if you were black and a white person were walking towards you on a sidewalk. You uh, gave them the right of way, if you will. Wow. And I thought that was a, yeah, I thought that was a wacky. Yeah. Uh, also, yeah. Uh, restaurants. Uh, Galveston it was a seafood town with great restaurants, but. Uh, back during those days of segregation uh, from the time I was born up until probably 1963, 64, uh, we were not allowed to go into a restaurant Mm -hmm. to sit down and eat like normal people do these days. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you wanted something for a restaurant, you went to the back alley door and and picked it up from there, you know? That's horrible. So in... Yeah, it, yeah. It, it, it kind of sucked. And it, it was more pronounced in my case because, and I was much more aware of it uh, than a lot of my peers in Galveston because I had seen what life was like in Milwaukee. 
So uh, I came to hate that part of it. So uh, around 1961, I think, uh, about the same year that they did the the sit-ins, I forgot, I think it was in North Carolina, maybe, uh, the Woolworth uh, uh, Mm -hmm. sit-ins, Galveston had its own. And shortly after that, um, the state instituted some laws outlawing uh, segregation, not to mention uh, some Supreme Court decisions in the interim between uh, the separate legal clause and that point in time in the 60s uh, took effect. Mm-hmm. And uh, integration hit Texas, but I was uh, there to really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. So um, my dad used to work for the Santa Fe Railroad and uh, he had a lot of friends out in California. So as a kid, I was also making uh, many trips out here mm-hmm. uh, with him as he visited his friends. So I was very much aware of California. Uh, although it still had its vestiges of racism, it still wasn't like Texas. It was still better. Mm-hmm. And it was warm. So yeah. I decided, <laughs> yeah. So I decided that when uh, the time came to go to college, that California is where I wanted to be. So I arrived here in 1966, August, and I went to UCLA. Nice. And that was the very first time in my life I had ever been in a classroom with other than black people. Kids, I had never been in a classroom with white people before, wow. or Hispanics, or Chinese, or anything other than black. Uh-huh. So um, uh, it was kind of an awe, actually, uh, uncomfortable but accepting, I guess you might say. And um, that began uh, my indoctrination to uh, open integration in the education system. So you and. Now- uh, so you were 19 years of age when you first experienced being in the classroom with mixed races. Exactly. I was about uh, two to three months away from being 19 years old when I had my first encounter with a white student in the same classroom with me. Did, did, they, treat, or any white did they treat you any different than you've been treated in Texas? Like as far as like, like you're well, you know, like you and your grandma were walking down the street, for instance, and you stepped off the sidewalk. Did you do something similar to that when you came to California? Did like habits from Texas come over with you where you would step off the sidewalk when you didn't need to? Well, as I grew up in Texas, that practice sort of waned out uh, as I got older. And um, this was before the uh, integration of the restaurants. But the uh, the practice of stepping off the curb for white people sort of uh, went by the wayside. Uh, I guess we got um, had enough of it. And uh, let me mention one other thing that happened that I, re- I recall now, too. Uh, voting in Texas. I remember my grandmother having to budget to pay what's called a poll tax in order to vote in um, any election, be it federal, state, or local. And um, the poll tax back then, and and remember, this is the 50s. It was only two bucks, but two bucks was 
a lot of money back then. Right. right. Yeah. It, it, yeah. For comparison purposes, uh, two bucks back then, uh, let's put it this way. A bag of potato chips was a nickel. Mm. A pack of gum was, was also five cents. So were popsicles, five mm. cents. Uh, that same bag of potato chips is now, you know, a buck 29 or a buck 59 at the your convenience store. Mm-hmm. So that's what two bucks was. That was pretty, pretty stiff money back then. But, uh, voting, if you didn't pay your poll tax, you couldn't vote. And even after you paid your poll tax, there were some places in Texas, which required you to guess how many jelly beans were in a jar, and, you know, really stupid stuff, anything to, uh, discourage you from voting. But anyway, uh, having, like I said, having lived in Milwaukee, uh, it gave me an opportunity to, to, to contrast the two different cultures, and uh, it made me want to get away from that sort of stuff. So the poll tax was a form of suppression, which mainly affected minorities and people in the poor communities, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, not much unlike today's uh, attempted practices by uh, some of the southern states to intimidate or limit uh, voting mm-hmm. by people from from the more liberal side of the political spectrum. But uh, eventually, I think the poll tax got uh, ruled unconstitutional by either the Texas Supreme Court or maybe the U.S. Uh, Supreme Court or a circuit judge or something like that. But eventually, it was outlawed. And so on top of the poll tax, you said there was something like you had to guess like jelly beans in a jar, and if you didn't, yeah, if you didn't pick the amount, then you wouldn't be able to vote, even if you paid the poll tax. Exactly. Wow. And I guess it depended. Yeah, it was crazy, and of course, it wasn't administered uh, equally everywhere among the the black populace. It was a random thing. Uh, I guess it depended on how the voting official felt that day. If he felt like giving a black guy a hard time, oh my um, God. yeah. It, yeah, it was a little disconcerting, and when I think back about those days, uh, they really weren't all that pleasant if you were a black guy. Right, right. I can't imagine how somebody could treat people this this badly in the United States, and it wasn't too long ago. Yeah, that's the scary part about it, and uh, it, it really irks me that there are people who, uh, I won't say they're proud of it, but they, they long for the old days. Mm-hmm. You know, but there's no, that's a, that's a dying breed. And so I think the future uh, will be better ultimately. Mm-hmm. You know, we may be looking at a, at another 70, 75 years before uh, this entire issue of race becomes uh, a little bit more of a, a, an issue in this country. I hope so anyway. Yeah, same here, same here. But I hope that people keep it in history and don't try to erase it because once you erase it, there's, you know, that it, the likelihood of it coming back again would be there, right? Because you're, you're, people want to change history books and all that stuff, right? So you, you just yeah, erase I, the history. You can't, you have to keep teaching people about it. Yeah, I, I, I get it. I understand you, you don't want to be cast in a bad light. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, DeSantis and, you know, that, that, that whole Florida thing, uh, and maybe Texas and, and also, also as it relates to, uh, critical race theory or CRT as they now call it. Mm-hmm. I, I can understand, you know, not wanting to be cast in a bad light, but the fact remains the truth is the truth. Yep. And, um, they shouldn't be afraid of it. You know, uh, um, if sorry. anything, they should be, they should be, Part, be part of moving forward rather than trying to hide behind uh, 
banning books and that sort of stuff. Right, right. And I'm, I'm sorry you had to go through that. That just, I can't imagine how that must have felt. Yeah. Oh, well, um, wound up in California, man. Life's yeah. good. I can't complain these days. You know, it's 50, 50 some years later now. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't done the math. 1966 till now is about, uh, let's see, 34. Yeah, 50, 56 years, I think. Yeah. Something like that that I've, that I've been here. Um, going back to growing up, uh, I when I grew up, uh, this was shortly after, uh, maybe prior to two years after the atomic bomb was first exploded. That's going way back. But I can remember as a kid uh, the invention and use, uh, usage of a ballpoint pen becoming the way to write. What was before the ballpoint pen? You had a you had a little bottle made by a company called the Schaefer Pen Company, mm-hmm. and in that bottle was black ink, liquid black ink, mm-hmm. and you had a fountain pen with a little rubber bladder inside of it, mm-hmm. and a lever on the side of the fountain pen that you pressed, and that bladder would suck up the ink into the uh, into the bladder. And it had a gold tip point, and that's what you would write with, uh-huh. with as the ink uh, gravity came down to the tip of the point. And that was your ink pen. Uh-huh. Uh, not much different than what Benjamin Franklin, you know, and that whole <laughs> that whole crowd used, uh-huh. except the ink was the ink was mass produced and readily uh, available in a bottle now, you know. But anyway, had that. Also, another invention that uh, I was uh, witness of was the transistor portable radio. Ooh. Uh, yeah, before before that happened, if you wanted to listen to a radio, you had to be at home, plugged into electricity, and you turn on your oversized uh, radio tuner. Mm-hmm. And so 1954 was, uh, I think, uh, the first release of the transistor radio, and you could um, now be freed from that monstrosity in your home and go anywhere and listen to the radio. <laughs> of course, it had about a, a 90-foot antenna on it, but uh, not, not really. The one that you would <laughs> More like a foot. You just kept on pulling it and pulling it and pulling it until it stopped. <laughs> yeah, that was exactly. Exactly. Two, exactly. Two, two or three feet tall or and, so. Yeah, and um, the transistor radio, uh, the ballpoint pen, you know, see what else came up back then. Uh, did you have a favorite radio? Did you have a favorite radio station that you'd listen to back then, or any radio personalities? Well, that's the thing. We only had uh, AM stations. There was no FM initially. Uh, FM came uh, a few years later. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, there was the uh, the white country rock station, or country uh, basic country station, and then a country rock, and there was a local uh, black station. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was my introduction to uh, the rock and roll thing, you know. Good morning, everybody, everywhere. Half of the fun is the swingin'est music under the sun. On Fantastic KR14 Galveston Radio. 83 degrees. Hey, swing with the Tom Nathan Tyler Show until 10 this morning. So, uh, by the way, I also came up when uh, Elvis was introduced to the world. Nice, nice. Were you a fan? Yeah. Uh, I like just dancing. <laughs> um, the, the music was 
you know. Uh-huh. Yeah. I didn't get carried away by it, but his dancing was unique. You didn't see too much of that unless you were uh, on a national basis, unless you saw, you know, Chuck Berry and uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, you know, people doing crazy antics on stage mm-hmm. by comparison to the Bing Crosby's and uh, Perry Como's. And these are old singers from uh, back in the 40s, 50s, 60s. Uh-huh. Uh, so Elvis was a, was a, a novel, a great novel, a great new novelty. Speaking of those singers, it, it brought back something to my mind that I remember reading about Galveston. Uh, do you remember the Tip Top Cafe back then? Vaguely, vaguely. Um, or the Tap Room. It it rings it rings a, a bell, but I can't remember the specifics. But he did remind me of a couple other things about uh, Galveston. Mm-hmm. Back in the '30s, it was uh, the Riviera of of Texas. And, you know, a lot of the oil barons and cattle barons who would gather in Galveston to party. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, it had a very famous red light district where prostitution, while not legal, was tolerated. Uh-huh. Uh, gam- gambling uh, was also tolerated. And the way they got around this uh around state laws against gambling and prostitution was the, the people with the money and the powers, uh, they developed what are called private clubs mm-hmm. and you paid a fee like, like a golf club membership. Mm-hmm. And once you were in there, you, you were granted access to, uh, booze. Texas was, was one of those states where you could not go into a bar and order, uh, a drink. It was almost a dry state. Okay. And uh, to to get booze uh, legally, you had to go to a private club, belong to a private club to, to get booze. Well, the booze brought the prostitution and uh, the gambling. So that was a, a really big deal in Texas uh, back then. And as the years went by, uh, the political scene changed a little bit, and they got rid of the um, the freewheeling style of Galveston. <laughs> Was, and when I say freewheeling, I do mean very freewheeling. If you ever go into a history book and look it up, you'll see some interesting stories about it. So it was like the Las Vegas of the South? Uh, even worse. Ooh, <laughs> okay. I'm going to have yeah. to look some things up. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 what's that saying? Uh, what stays in Vegas? The, uh, well, Galveston was pretty much the same thing, you know? <laughs> I seriously am <laughs> yeah, taking a note of it right now, and I'm looking up. This information after. Yeah, uh, look up the Balinese, B-A-L-I-N-E-S-E room. Okay. Yeah, that was a pretty popular joint uh, back then. And all these joints were, uh, the service people were all black for the most part. Except for the the management. Now, were blacks allowed into uh, these private clubs? Even if they had money to join? Oh, no way, man. No. You were either the bus boy or the waiter or the dishwasher or maybe the uh, maybe one of the cooks. Oh, wow. Okay. And in rare, rare cases, the, the, the chef. My, my first foray into uh, public restaurants, aside from being a dishwasher or a bus boy or a waiter, 
was in 1964, first time I ever was able to go into a restaurant and uh, eat. And instead of getting the nice windows next to the table where you could look out over the uh, seawall and see the ocean and everything, uh-huh. they always put black people in the worst uh, spots near the door, back near the, you know, where the waiters went through the swinging door. Uh-huh. And you, you could hear the kitchen noises and the dishwashers and all that stuff. We never got the good seats. So it was still sort of like segregation within the restaurant, even though you were allowed in, but we yeah. wanted to put you in the back. Exactly. But we were in. Mm-hmm. So that, I guess that, that was progress, you know. Did you uh, have... From my perspective. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, please do. And I was going to say from, from my perspective, the, the contrast between how blacks are living in the U.S. these days uh, compared to back then, uh, it's like a different planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was really bad. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't know it. It's sort of, you ever heard the, the, uh, analogy is it's like a fly in a vinegar jar who thinks it's the sweetest place in the world because it's the only place he's ever been. No, I've never heard well, that. Yeah. Well, that's kind of what it was like if you were, um, a young kid growing up in Galveston, you know, and, and, and that's all you knew. But like I said, I was able to see the Milwaukee side of life. So I kind of had a different perspective on that whole segregation thing. Did you experience this alone or did you have brothers and sisters that you grew up with that experienced this as well? Uh, Yeah, there were, uh, at that time in Galveston, there were four of us, uh, two boys and two girls. Mm -hmm. And um, we all went through basically the same thing. You're bringing back a lot of strange memories. I remember not walking home one night from my job as a busboy at this restaurant I was telling you about. It was, and it's a, basically a five-star restaurant, really nice place. Mm-hmm. Um, at any rate, I, walked, I had to walk through the white neighborhood to get back to the black side of town where we live. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's maybe 1130, 12, 1230 uh, in the middle of the night. And I'm crossing uh, an alleyway. And I hear this noise, and the next thing I hear is, get out of here, nigger. And I look up, and there's a guy releasing a brick from his hand, throwing it at my head. And um, back then, you know, I think about 17, 16 or 17 years old. And I used to be a track track star, kind of. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I turned on the jets, got away, and uh, they missed, out, fortunately missed my head. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got away from them, and I hid in some bushes about a couple blocks down. And uh, I could hear them getting into a car and trying to trace me down, but they couldn't find me in the bushes. And when it finally uh, felt safe, uh, it felt safe enough to come out of the bushes, I didn't hear the car or hear them anymore. I got out of the bushes and started continuing back toward the black side of town. And next thing I know, there's a car pulling up behind me and there's a white guy in it and he's pointing a gun at me and he tells me, get in. So I got in. Wow. And yeah, scared shitless. I bet. But uh, Yeah. But anyway, he turned out to be pretty cool. He says, and, and this is my best impression of a Texas accent. accent. Uh, 
what's all that damn noise going on around here? I don't like that stuff. And he's still playing the gun at me. Uh-huh. And I explained to him what, what happened. And he said, well, that ain't right. Mm-hmm. He said, where you want me to take you? Uh, so he, he ended up helping you out. <laughs> yeah, he wanted to help me out, but I still didn't trust him. Uh, yeah. I had him drop me off about five bucks from home, you know, in an obscure neighborhood, but on the black side of town. That's so scary. So, um, yeah, that was uh, weird. So that kind of gave me, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A lot of apprehension and suspicion of non-melanated people. people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But um, I started accepting people uh, after interacting with them more in college and stuff. And I said, well, not all whites are bad. 100% agree. I'm trying to imagine what I would do if I was in that same situation. And to be honest, I just don't know. Run, perhaps? Hide somewhere until like the morning? I don't know. Did you try knocking on someone's door? Yeah. Well, a black guy in, in 1230 at night banging on your door mm-hmm. in the white neighborhood it doesn't guarantee you uh, success. So uh, it was better to run. Trust me. No. But, yeah, I don't mean to dwell on the race thing so much, but it, nevertheless, it was, it was a you know a very uh, important part of my life. Exactly. And uh, I've been fortunate enough to live till I'm 75 now, so it's easy for me to contrast uh, life back then um, to now. And the good thing is it's uh, a little bit better. It ain't perfect, but it, it's better. I appreciate you taking the time and talking about this. It has to bring up unpleasant memories, but there are many people listening to this podcast who may have never heard about experiences like this. Yeah. Well, as it turned out, uh, so many years later, uh, I'm um, no longer stigmatized uh, by the racism thing. Um, I am married now. I have um, four boys. Nice. And uh, from that, from that, I have uh, five grandchildren, and three of them are multiracial. Nice. Um, yeah, so um, I got a very, very integrated family. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to mention, my family in Milwaukee is quite integrated. Uh, we've got Filipinos, we've got Germans, um, we've got uh, Asians, mm-hmm. uh, spouses. You know, uh, we're it's an international family now, and I'm, I'm very proud of that and very happy uh, with that fact. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. And, yeah. And in fact, I have two of my granddaughters. Two of my granddaughters are uh, pretty interesting. Uh, one is about uh, almost three, and one is um, almost six. The six-year-old has very Caucasian features, you know, the, the long blonde hair. Mm-hmm. And the three-year-old, uh, almost three years old, has uh, very curly hair, uh-huh. and uh, it's uh, it's just kind of interesting seeing the the contrast between the two. So in my mind, I call her little sister, and uh, Genevieve is a whatever you want to be <laughs> kind of thing, you know. And another uh, granddaughter, my oldest granddaughter, is uh, part Nicaraguan and uh, part black. Nice. And she's about 16 and uh, just recently moved to Hawaii with her father, who's in the Navy. 
Nice. As a uh, Navy corpsman, that's sort of like a medic, uh, but in the Navy, uh, they call him corpsman. Did your siblings all serve in the military? Uh, good question. Um, only one of them did. Um, I have a brother that was in the Air Force, and uh, that was it. Otherwise, uh, I was uh, just thinking back as, as you asked me that. You about the military. Um, you've heard of the Vietnam War, correct? I have, yes. Um, I have to come to California, as I told you, I went to UCLA, and um, back then they had the Vietnam War and they were drafting people. Uh, they had a thing called a draft board, mm-hmm. and it was a group of local people who selected names. I don't know how they arrived at them, uh, but if they fell within a certain age range, and you were legally required nationally on a federal level to register with the draft board, give them your name and, you know, where you're going to be found if they want to snatch you up and put you in the army or whatever. Mm-hmm. So uh, while I was at UCLA, you needed to have a minimum of 12 uh, units, educational units, in order to be exempt from the draft during this period from 1966 to 1970. Okay. And um, I played football while I was in college. And I got injured, and as a result, um, I wasn't able to play. I got despondent, and I wound up screwing up, and I dropped a couple of classes, and I fell below the required 12 units mm-hmm. minimum to stay, out, to stay out of the draft. So I wound up getting drafted by Uncle Sam. You get this wonderful-sounding letter. It's a greeting from the President of the United States, and you hereby order to report, blah, 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 wherever they want you to go. Uh-huh. And, and um, even though I played football, I'm really a softy man. I, I don't like pain. Mm-hmm. And I, the, the, the injury I had was to my shoulder, and I could see no way of going through basic training and all that sort of stuff with um, the injury that I had. So I went down for my physical, and surprisingly, they passed me. Really? I couldn't believe it. You know? Yeah, you know, anyway. Uh, <laughs> At that point, I became high, very highly anti-war uh-huh. and uh, got involved with the anti-war activities. Uh, back then, they were considered a very radical organization. It's called SDS, uh-huh. which stands for uh, Student Democratic Society. They were, well, these days, they would have been classified as terror, terrorists. Uh-huh. But uh, I got involved with them. And uh, through that involvement, I was introduced to a lawyer who had an office on Hollywood and Vine. And uh, I went to that lawyer, and he advised me uh, that he was going to send a letter to the Army Surgeon General to uh, present my case and, you know, with medical evidence and why I should not be drafted. Mm-hmm. And he did a great job. And that lawyer's name was Stanley Reichman. Uh-huh. Uh, look him up. You'll find some interesting stuff about him, too. Okay. Yeah. And so but you, anyway, were I, avoid, um, you were able to avoid the draft at that point once he wrote the letter? Well, it goes a little further than that. I, uh, you know, the, the wheels of justice and all that stuff turned very slowly. So between the time uh, I 
past, quote unquote, my physical, I was ordered in the time that uh, the Surgeon General made a determination, I was uh, ordered to report for induction. And um, downtown LA, somewhere between Olympic and 8th Street, I'm sorry, 11th and uh, Broadway, between 11th and uh, Olympic, was the draft board location or the, the induction center. And in the process of being inducted, you know, you just step forward and take an oath. And once you take that oath, you're part of the military. And uh, Mr. Fleischman uh, suggested that I uh, do not step forward and uh, simply refuse induction mm-hmm. on the basis of being a conscientious objector. So in addition to the letter that he was writing to the Surgeon General, there was also a process to apply for conscientious objective status. So those two parallel things were going on uh, while I was being uh, quote-unquote inducted. But when the time came for the oath, I did not step forward. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was singled out and brought to a room and talked (laughs) Talked to very badly by, you know, some grouchy uh, drill sergeant or whatever they these guys are mm-hmm. that, you know, run the induction center and given a chance to um, rethink this thing and take the oath. And I stood fast. I didn't go. And they let me go home. Mm-hmm. So um, off I went. And a few weeks later, the knock on the door. And there's two couple of federal marshals, and uh, off I went to a federal detention center, and uh, went through the, <clears throat> the formal process of the <clears throat> being charged. In the interim, um, the letter from the Surgeon General came through because my conscience of objective status had been denied. By the way, so the letter from the Surgeon General came through from the uh, Army. Uh, concurrent with me being uh, taken down by the feds. Uh, and that was my salvation. And I got out of the draft. I got out of going to Vietnam and being probably killed. It's sad to hear at many different points in your life that uh, from school to military, you had to deal with some sort of racism. I don't know if you're very much aware of the uh, the, the stats related to uh, the death in Vietnam. I, I, and, yeah, um, I don't remember those. Yeah, the uh, greater number of, uh, percentage-wise, of uh, troops that got killed were black. And um, if you were black in, in Vietnam, you had a greater chance of being killed than you did of, of you know, the white kid who never got drafted or even put into the service because more like more than likely you got a, a better job. You wouldn't necessarily put on the front lines as bait. I guess is the best way to put it. Right. But anyway, uh, just happened to re- remember that part of the life while we were talking here. Didn't mean to uh, get off the topic. Oh, no, no problem at all. No problem at all. Yeah. yeah uh, military uh, school was uh, at least secondary school. Mm-hmm. Uh, college uh, gave me a little bit of respite from the racial thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I got a little better, got a little bit better. But to this day, I really harbor uh, negative feelings about 
Texas and uh, anything happening to it. I'm an avid anti-cowboy fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything Texas, anything Texas fan for that matter, except yeah. for Austin. Austin is a pretty cool place, by the way. If you've never been there, I suggest you try it. It's on my spot to go. I need to go there. Yeah. You talked a bit about football. Did you play in high school? Uh, yeah, I was a uh, running back in high school. And um, Galveston, despite having a, um, a small population, for some reason we were uh, darn good in athletics. Uh, we would win state championships in football, state championships in track. Mm-hmm. Um not so much in basketball, but uh, for a little town, uh, we were, and in Texas, football was king. So we were king, and that was a king running back, if you will. What was the which name is of how I wanted to be. What was it, the name of the high school? It's called Central, Central High School, okay. uh, which, by the way, was the very first high school in the state of Texas uh, for black people. Oh. Prior to Central High School, there were no high schools for black people. There was no higher education, if you will. Seriously? Um, nope. And this is going back. It was it was created back around I don't know maybe eighteen, you know, ninety seven or something like that. But uh-huh. prior to that, there were no black schools. So it's the oldest high school in the state of Texas. And I was uh, next to the last graduating class. Um, out of that high school. After I graduated, the segregation thing, uh, the separate but equal thing went away and the schools integrated. And my high school is now a junior high school. It's still open to this um, day? Yeah, it's still called Central Central High School. Uh-huh. But it was a great education. Uh, I had teachers that cared. Uh, we were given classes that uh, gave you a lot of life skills. We had uh, quantity cooking, which taught you how to be a chef. Mm-hmm. We had automotive uh, engineering, taught you how to you know, work on cars. We had dressing and cleaning, which is where you take your clothes to mm-hmm. get clean. You know, an actual cleaners on, 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 on campus. Nice. We had home, home economics with a fully uh, complete home. Kitchen, you know, living room, the whole, it was a house inside a high school which taught the girls how to, how to sew and clean house and mm-hmm. you know, those sort of things. Uh, one day I'll send you uh, an old pictures from, I think, 1963 or 64. It's uh, our entire team when we won the state championship, and uh, I'm on the second row on the right. You'll, you'll see my little 160 pound face. <laughs> but at any rate, I'd uh, love, I'd I love with, to see it. It's kind of hard to make out, but it's me. Um, at any rate, I um, had the opportunity to come to UCLA and try to see if I could make a name for myself. Unfortunately, there was a guy there by the name of Mel Farr, F-A-R-R. Mm-hmm. And Mel Farr was from one of the rival schools in Texas uh, in a place called Beaumont, Texas. And I used to play football against Mel Farr, and I don't know if you've ever heard of Bubba Smith. No. Doesn't ring a bell. Okay, look him up on the, put, write that one down. You'll, you'll be interested. Uh, he played uh, with uh, Johnny Unitas in Baltimore. He was a big-time tackle, okay. defensive tackle. Anyway, wound up, um, he went to, went, wound up in Michigan State. I wound up out here. But anyway, um, Mel Farr was the, um, Top running back, and I was a bench warmer for the most part. 
and Mel eventually wound up with the Detroit Lions. Ooh. And uh, unfortunately, my second year, as I mentioned earlier, I hurt my shoulder, so I never yeah. really had my chance to, to really do my thing, you know. But it paid for an education, so uh, I'm not complaining. Um, Did you do track and field also? Not in college, but uh, in yeah, in high school, I was a quarter miler and a two twenty guy. Nice. And uh, tried to run a hundred, but uh, I had this really weird quirk about my running style. I didn't get going to like maybe seventy yards downstream, uh-huh. and the pack would leave me. But just before the finish line. I'd catch up with everybody. I was you know, kind of a photo finish guy, but I never won. Oh. But nowadays, when I think back, uh, things changed, and they got away from the 100-yard dash, and they went to 100 meters, which is 110 yards. Mm-hmm. And that extra 10 yards generally gave me uh, the acceleration and the strength I needed to, to win. So, uh, unfortunately, that wasn't happening uh, while I was in high school, it didn't happen. So I was a very poor 100-yard runner, but 110, 100 meters or 110 yards, I would have been a star. But can't cry. I had a, had a good time in high school with it. Uh, but when I got to college, they had a couple of guys uh, that were running the quarter mile in you know, that 44, 45-second uh, range. Mm-hmm. Uh, a guy named Wayne Collette. Mm-hmm. And, uh, gosh, I forgot the other guy's name, but UCLA had a couple of, uh, Olympic, uh, quarter milers, uh, that were pretty popular and, uh, I couldn't compete with them. So that was, they kept me out of the track thing in college. Uh, uh, okay. It would have been a good, would have been a useless endeavor. Uh, also, well, I might mention, um, while I was, uh, in college, uh, I got a letter from my high school track coach telling me about an inquiry from Occidental College, which is in Eagle Rock. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were looking for a quarter miler. And I almost left UCLA to go to Eagle Rock to go to (laughs) Occidental. And uh, the thing about Occidental is that Obama was a student there. Really? Uh, Yeah. Oh yeah, sometimes some years after I left, but uh, yeah, he was uh, he was he was enrolled in Occidental College for one or two years before he moved on to uh, Harvard or wherever he wound up finishing and getting his degrees. Uh-huh. But I turned that down and stayed at UCLA, so I never got a never gave Occidental a chance. Uh, sorry if but I missed. Could have been sorry if I missed this, but what did you study at UCLA? Well, I started out uh, wanting to be a CPA. Uh, I took to accounting like uh, you know, fish to water. It was, uh, I don't know, I wasn't a savant, but damn near to it, close to it, man. I was good. Nice. But uh, at any rate, uh, that became, um, a, uh, I graduated in a, with a major in economics. Mm-hmm. And uh, after that, I wound up getting a job, and I'm going into another phase of my life now. This is after the high school and after the college thing. Mm-hmm. I wound up getting a job with a company in in uh, downtown Los Angeles on Sixth and Olive. In the at that time, it was the City National Bank building. I don't know what it is now. Across the street from Pershing Square, mm-hmm. and uh, I became. Uh, a, a trader. 
uh, trading stocks and bonds. I got my uh, NASD, that's National Association of Security Dealers License. Uh-huh. And that's what, yeah, that's what you got to do if you want to sell securities uh, nationally. But anyway, I got my, my NASD license. And at that time, I think I was about 21, 22 years old. And I was a trader at this mutual fund company, and we were the largest mutual fund company uh, in terms of uh, assets and uh, performance in the country. But to show you a contrast of how how much money uh, has uh, inflated, uh, at least value has inflated since then, mm-hmm. uh, the market when I was in it was was in the three digits. Like today, they're like a twenty nine thousand eight hundred points or whatever. Uh-huh. Back then we were around six or 700 points. Wow. That, that's how much the market has grown since 1970. Did you take to that so, career? Like you, like you mentioned earlier, you, you were like a savant in, um, accounting. Were you similar in this, uh, type of a role? Yeah, pretty much. Um, uh, and the interesting thing about that, uh, here comes a race again. Uh, <laughs> I went to a, um, a um, one of these job centers where, you know, people, employment centers, where they have, they have jobs available. Mm-hmm. And um, at that time, the affirmative action had just started. That was this program that the, the U.S. government had instituted to try to equal things up in terms of uh, black people in the workforce. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there was a time when uh, blacks were the last hired and the first fired. Uh-huh. So to, to counter that, they started affirmative action and the government offered incentive, incentives to companies that hired black people. Uh-huh. So uh, just, I guess I was their token black. <laughs> and uh, as a result of that, I wound up being, um, during that time, usually the first and only black in a lot of my jobs. Oh, okay. So, uh, yeah, that was kind of weird. But um, I survived, and it, it was a, a good growth experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I got to interact with um, people on the, uh, at the corporate level, at the executive level, and I grew. And unfortunately, uh, Two years later, the market went really bad, and I got laid off, and um, started had to go looking for another job. So back to the job center again. This time, they sent me to a company that sold raw material and industrial equipment. The raw material is stuff like steel, aluminum, brass, copper, you know that sort of stuff, stainless steel, mm-hmm. but in its raw format. And we were the middle guy between the steel mill where these metals were produced and the end user. Um, so I became a, uh, a salesman for this uh, metal, metal company. Mm-hmm. And I wound up getting involved in metallurgy. You know, it's the study of metals and their uses, uses and uh, characteristics and properties. Uh-huh. And um, I did that for a couple of years as a uh, salesman calling on places like uh, Northrop or at that time Douglas Aircraft, uh, Lockheed. I'm sure you've heard of Lockheed before. I've heard of all these. And at that time, yeah, there was also a company called Rockwell, Rockwell International. Mm -hmm. And um, Rockwell was the company that developed the space shuttle. 
Ooh. Uh, just to give you a little reference there. Uh-huh. But anyway, I was making a sales call one day to a Rockwell facility out in Canoga Park, uh, California, uh-huh. to be specific, DeSoto and Nordoff, to give you a geographical reference point. Anyway, um, these, over time, you develop relationships with buyers and, and companies, you know, because uh-huh. uh, you call them on a frequent monthly basis, sometimes weekly, depending on, you know, what their needs were. Anyway, I got offered a job to be a buyer at Rockwell. Nice. And, uh, yes, it's so late. I mean, what, what's it paying, you know? And they gave me a salary number, and it was damn near twice what I was making including commission. Congratulations. <laughs> so that, that was a no brainer. Uh-huh. And, uh, that was an interesting place. Uh, that particular division of Rockwell was involved in atomic energy and we made, uh, fuel rods uh-huh. and we made, uh, equipment for nuclear reactors. Wow. And, uh, I became a buyer in the, uh, nuclear industry. And I uh, got assigned to a thing called the Clinch River Breeder Reactor Program as a buyer. Uh-huh. And um, what you do as a buyer on those types of things is you're a subcontract administrator, okay? Uh, you know, the government issues a contract to whatever company happens to win a bid. And then that company has to go out and produce whatever the end item is, be it a submarine or a ship or a nuclear reactor. But to do all that, you've got to buy all the components from various companies that specialize in certain segments of the manufacturing world. Mm-hmm. So I got to uh, travel around the U.S. Uh, going to different companies to get stuff made for nuclear reactors. Did you have to get and a clearance I, or anything like that? Uh, no, not at that time. I did not. Okay. No, uh, because I, I wasn't involved in anything uh, particularly secret, you know, uh, they weren't, they weren't for defense. Mm-hmm. Um, although it was one time I did get a clearance for one program for these, uh, fuel rods for submarines. So I had to kind of be, uh, blessed, uh, from an intelligence standpoint mm-hmm. for that part of my job. But that was only temporary, but basically no, I, I did not get a, uh, clearance for anything else. Yeah, so anyway, I stayed at Rockwell for, uh, I guess, about six, seven years. And um, in that time, uh, about 1972, I had a friend who married a young lady from Panama. Uh And I became friends with his wife. And uh, in 72, his wife told me that she had a girlfriend who uh, moved from Panama to New York City and was coming out here for a visit. Mm-hmm. And uh, did I want to meet her? And I said, okay, what the heck, you know, I'm a bachelor. Uh, so she showed me a picture of my wife. Uh, her name is Gloria. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was in a bikini. And there were two pictures. One was a head-on shot, full body, and the other one was a side shot, full body. Uh-huh. And uh, with a nice, quote-unquote, bump on the back end. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, sure, I'll meet her. What the heck? Uh-huh. Anyway, so uh, Gloria comes out to uh, visit her friend. And I meet her. And 
six months later, we were married. Wow. Uh, I don't so know quick. Yeah. Well, it was um, kind of a quirk, really. I took her to go see a movie one night. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, a drive-in movies used to be pretty popular back in those days. So, you know, you go in your car, you take your booze with you, mm-hmm. you, you, you weed, for those of you who are woke. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so uh, we were in the uh, drive-in uh, drinking and watching a movie. And after that, I took her to, uh, you know, one of those little Norm's Diner kind of joints. Mm-hmm. And uh, feeling good on the... Uh, the cognac, I'm a cognac lover, mm-hmm. and uh, the, the smoke, Gloria and I started talking. I started, I guess, talking romantically, and uh, the next morning, we wake up, and she goes, did you really mean what, what you said last night? And, um, you know, hell, I didn't remember what the hell I said. <laughs> so being a gentleman or an asshole, depending on your point of view, I said, yes. Uh-huh. And she says, well, when do you want to do it? And uh, then it hit me. I go, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> what did I say? But I didn't, I, didn't want to get, I, want, I didn't want to give up my game. So I said, well, when do you want to do it? Uh-huh. He said, well, most people, most people get married in June, but I don't want to do it again. I said, oh, I'm getting married. Oh, my God. But fortunately, I really did like her. Uh-huh. Uh, so uh, August of 72, we got married. Mm-hmm. And we lived a glorious uh, four years without any kids. Mm-hmm. And um, life was good, you know, for new yeah. money. Yeah, rent was only $210 a month. Uh, that same house now, the rent's 3900 a month, by the way, uh, in Los Angeles. The house, I could have bought it for about 45000 It's now worth $1.3 million. Oh, my <laughs> okay. gosh. Yeah, but anyway. Uh, $200 a process, month for rent? Two ten a month, and uh, Jeez, I don't even pay that for my car tags. <laughs> oh, my car note was eighty four dollars, man. You know what? <laughs> but bear in mind too, my my paycheck was only six hundred a month. So uh-huh. It wasn't all that that big of a deal, you know. I still had to live paycheck to paycheck sometimes. Right. Yeah, but anyway, that um, that's happened since uh, seventy two, and then seventy six. After four glorious years of partying and traveling uh, the country and the world, uh, here comes a guy by the name of, of Anel. Ah, yes. You know, you know very well. Mm-hmm. And uh, Anel hates his name, by the way. Why? Uh, well, something, you know, the coolest people in the world are uh, kids in school. Mm-hmm. Uh, they really are. And uh, anal translates very easily to anal, A-N-A-L. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so anal got a lot of that in school. So he's not very appreciative of his name. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, by the way, if case you're wondering how he got that name, uh, it came from his mother. It's a very common name in the uh, Panamanian community. Okay. So uh, she liked it. And, He's stuck with it, okay? <laughs> Anel's, yeah. a, Anel's a so, big dude, so I'm, I'm pretty sure he took some of those kids uh, to the playground and, you know, tossed them around a little bit when they started uh, making fun of his name. Well, actually, he was a very normal, actually kind of undersized guy until um, maybe about three years out of high school. Then he started putting on weight uh-huh. and uh, started, started gaining a little height, and now he's kind of an intimidating 
looking kind of guy. Yep, yep, he is. Yeah. And uh, he, he's not harmless. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but he's harmless. Okay. So anyway, um, that part of my life uh, brought me uh, at the end of Rockwell to, uh, oh, let me mention this too. You ever heard of Three Mile Island? Yes, the atomic, okay. wasn't there like an accident there or something like that, like a nuclear meltdown uh, yeah, or something? There was a, a, exactly, it's a, it's a reactor uh, near Detroit, uh, Michigan, and there was a, uh, a meltdown, just, just about a meltdown, which is about as bad as it can get in the nuclear industry. Um, that was uh, also the company... The, the, the people who ran that company had a contract with Rockwell to furnish uh, a piece of equipment which would have um, mitigated any problems in any reactor that had the kind of problem that Three Mile Island had. And basically what happened is a piece of cooling equipment failed in the reactor. And when it failed, there was a there's a buildup of hydrogen in the uh, reactor containment building. Mm-hmm. And any, I don't know, you remember the Hindenburg? Yes. Okay, well, that's high, that was filled with hydrogen. Mm-hmm. Uh, imagine a nuclear reactor containment building filled with hydrogen and a spark hits it. Oh. Okay, boom. Big boom. Yeah. Boom. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. Um, unlivable. Uh, Chernobyl on steroids, steroids kind of thing. Uh, but anyway, we 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 furnished uh, a piece of equipment that was responsible for when that sort of thing happened to remove the hydrogen atmosphere inside the containment building and mix it with uh, water and uh, heat, and the resultant product was basically steam, which we released to the outside world mm-hmm. without any contamination, without any explosion. Uh, we had already shipped that piece of equipment to Three Mile Island. They had never installed it. It was sitting in some warehouse there at the site. In the meantime, it almost melts down. So uh, as a result of that, the nuclear industry got a bad name. Uh-huh. And uh, the government canceled uh, the breeder reactor program. And by the way, a breeder reactor would have been the closest thing to perpetual energy civilization may have ever known. Uh, basically, it's a reactor that uh, you makes more fuel than it uses. It's a chemical, physical, physics kind of process, but mm-hmm. you can start out with uh, a block of uranium, and uh, once you've spent it, it turns into something else uh, radioactive, and that breeder reactor could also use whatever it had morphed into, and it does that about three or four times. Mm-hmm. So, uh, energy forever. But, Three Mile Island killed that, and uh, at that time, Northrop had started the F-18 program. The F-18 is a, a fifth generation, a fourth generation fighter mm-hmm. aircraft. Uh, the ones you see uh, after Top Gun. Top Gun uh, uses the F-14. Mm-hmm. Current uh, Top Gun movie uses the F-18. Okay. So they were Northrop was hiring buyers for the F-18 program. So uh, I left Rockwell, and for the next 30 years, I was with uh, Northrop uh, on the F-18 program, buying whatever it took to make that a uh, 
the weapon, if you will. That is interesting. I've never met anybody that's worked on stuff like this. Yeah, it's uh, basically what I did is, you know, engineering uh, draws up the designs and I take the designs and I go around the country and find companies just like Rockwell that could make whatever it was we needed. Mm-hmm. And I administered the program to make sure that it was delivered on, uh, correctly on time and in accordance with specifications mm-hmm. and you negotiated contracts and, you know, spend a lot of taxpayer money. That sounds like fun though. So, uh, yeah, it, it, it is. I get to see a lot of stuff that uh, people have no idea how it became what it became. Uh, yeah. The aircraft industry, yeah, that aircraft industry is absolutely amazing. And um, airplanes are a lot more than you think they are. Mm-hmm. It, it, it takes quite a bit to, uh, to produce one. Oh, I but at any rate, yeah, it's... Uh, amazing. So anyway, eventually uh, F-18 and the B-1 program, um, they wound down and I got laid off. But it worked for uh, a couple of years in the mid-90s. And uh, during that time, by that time, I I, uh, had produced three more kids. (laughs) Uh, One of of them was a set of twins, which I didn't see that one coming. Uh Yeah. So um, Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, please do. Oh, okay. Anyway, uh, so in the mid-90s, I had uh, four kids, a wife, and no job for two years. Mm-hmm. And um, I know when they say the struggle is real, mm-hmm. it's real, believe me. Mm-hmm. So um wound up losing the house and, you know, the whole bit, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, anyway, I eventually got hired by a company in Azusa. It's called Aerojet. Mm-hmm. Aerojet initially made the, uh, you remember the first moon shot, the first time the U.S. ever went to the moon? Right, yep. Okay, well, they had to get off the moon. And to get off the moon, they had to get back in what's called the LIM, that's the Lunar Excursion Module. And the rockets fire and shoots it back up to the command module, and they dock, and then they head back to Earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, uh, Aerojet made the engines, which could not fail at all costs, could not fail to lift the uh, lunar module back up to the command module. Mm-hmm. So that's who Aerojet was. And also, they uh, they also made um, the U.S.'s first reconnaissance uh, satellites, them also in concert with TR, what used to be TRW in Redondo Beach. Mm-hmm. So I wound up uh, working for Aerojet uh, as a buyer and got into the uh, reconnaissance business um, and, uh, you know, the satellite thing. And I stayed there for, I guess, five or six years. That was pretty interesting. Uh, You'd be amazed that, uh, without giving any secrets away, uh, how well optics are designed in the reconnaissance satellite business. Um, you know, license plates from license plates from space kind of thing. Maybe not that wow. refined, but pretty damn close to it. You know, right. as the years go on, t- technology keeps improving and you can literally go on Google maps, uh, the satellite page and nearly see any place in the world in somewhat detailed fashion. 
It's amazing. Uh, some of the cameras we use in our phones now were developed as a result of uh, the government developing those photography skills mm. and uh, then released to the uh, to the public. And when you, when you, if you really look at it, most of our technology today starts with uh, the government's uh, involvement. And some people estimate that the government could be as many as 20 to 30 years ahead of what the public really sees. Oh, I bet. Uh, some people say less. I, I think it's a little bit less, maybe like 10 years, maybe. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the cell phones were a direct result of uh, the government's efforts uh, to uh, get uh, the type of photography uh, that they wanted. Mm-hmm. And then they felt... Uh, after they reached another plateau, they felt, well, this is sort of obsolete. Let's give it to the public. Mm. And that's why your iPhone or your Android now works with a great camera. Uh-huh. Sort of like DARPA back in the days, I guess, where government had the internet before the internet. And then finally they released it to pretty much everybody. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And DARPA is still doing uh, wonderful things that mm. uh, we aren't aware of. Um, I still have a few people, a few friends that are in the uh, defense industry, and I, I hear tidbits of stuff that they're doing. And uh, without giving away any secrets, let's just say it's pretty mind blowing. Yeah. Um, their uh, AI is a different AI than the AI you read about in the news. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Very, very much different. Um, anyway, uh, continue with my little life story here. Um, I left um, Northrop, the, oh, I'm sorry, not Northrop, but Aerojet. I, I stayed at Aerojet for about six years, but in that process, Northrop bought Aerojet. And it also bought Grumman. Grumman is the company that made uh, the uh, F-14, no, not the F-14, but the F-4 fighter, Phantom fighter. Mm-hmm. And Northrop bought that company and a couple other companies. So Northrop became a huge conglomerate of aerospace uh, related companies. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I um, got a friend that I played football with in high school and he wound up in Michigan State as a, a football player there. And eventually, uh, life led him out to California and um, he became a real estate appraiser and started a company. Mm-hmm. And he convinced me to come with him and learn the real estate uh, appraisal business. Mm-hmm. So I uh, became a real estate appraiser. Nice. And I don't know, you're probably aware Anil does that. There's a, mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's how he got into the um, appraisal business. Oh, from you? Uh, yeah, from okay. me and my uh, high school friend. Yeah, and he's still to this, still to this day uh, an appraiser, although there's nothing to appraise since uh, the interest rates are up and nobody's buying houses as much as they used to. Yeah. Yeah, it's ridiculous. I'm glad, right I don't know if Anel, yeah, I don't know if Anel is bothered by me sharing this with you, but I will. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is back in the early 2000s, and it was a freewheeling, uh, anybody got a loan to buy a house days. Oh, yeah. Uh, you didn't, yeah, you didn't have to show any documentation. You just stated what your income was, and you got funded for your loan. Mm-hmm. Within reason, as long as, as long as your credit was, you know, six twenty or above. You know. So um, appraisers were just worked to death, and Anel would 
go out and do multiple appraisers appraisals in a in a day. Mm-hmm. I don't know what his high point is, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if if he could have clocked as many as eight to ten appraisers appraisals a day, mm-hmm. and uh, each appraisal is like let's say over three hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, and you do that on a daily basis, and you make good money. Oh yeah. Real good money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, congratulations. Now I hope you spend it well. I have a couple more questions for you. I, I want to be respectful of your time. I, we've been talking for, wow, close to an hour and a half already. Um, so oh, I'm, wow. I'm sorry. No. I'm, yeah. I'm sorry. No, 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 not at all. I, I'm enjoying every second of this. I just, I feel bad for keeping you on for so long, but everything you're talking about is just amazing to me. So I'm just letting you go. And um, uh, yeah, I, I do have a couple questions I'd like to ask you um, if, if we could. Get away. Cool. All right. So uh, coming from Texas to California, do you remember the first time? Um, you felt an earthquake. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I was in the Guamans. Well, at that time, it, it was the Guamans Chinese Theater. I think it's now called the TCL Theater. Next to the Kodak Theater on Hollywood Boulevard. And uh, I was sitting in the front row because uh, a very popular movie called Earthquake had been released. And uh, I'm in the movie watching Earthquake. And while I'm in in there, there's an earthquake. And I'd never experienced one before. (laughs) And uh, all I knew is that my seat was moving and I saw people getting up very rapidly and running out of the theater. Uh And, uh, And it hit me. Something's not right, so you know I did a crowd reaction thing like anybody else would, and ran out with them. You know, mm-hmm. that was my very first uh, earthquake uh, on inside the Grumman's well TCL theater, watching earthquake with an actor by the name of Charlton Heston. He's the guy that played Moses in the Ten Commandments in the old Ten Commandments movie. Yeah, you were probably like, "What the hell? I didn't pay for a 4D movie." What the heck? So uh, shortly after that, uh, later in that, uh, later on after the New Year's of that year, the next year comes along. It's New Year's, and uh, it's February sixth, I think, something like that, mm-hmm. nineteen seventy-one. And I'm living in uh, Hollywood. I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, sort of East Hollywood area, like around Sunset and Maltman. Yeah, yeah. Okay, there's a huge hill up the top of that hill, and I'm up there on that hill. Mm-hmm. So anyway, we're in a we're in a house that was probably built back in the 20s. Me and my girlfriend, mm-hmm. and uh, it's about six in the morning, and all of a sudden the bed starts shaking violently. Mm-hmm. Uh, this whole house sounded like it was about to crash. Our bed danced across the floor to the other side of the room. Oh, wow. And it continued to toss us up and down. And um, 
that was, I think, maybe a 5.9 or 6.1, something like that. But it was, by any standards, a major earthquake. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think uh, the freeway somewhere near the 14 and the 5 uh, collapsed. Oh. Uh, You know, some motorcycle cop died uh, flying off of it at that time of the morning. Uh, Somewhere around, I may be wrong about this, but somewhere around Melrose, uh, in um, Hollywood, maybe around Normandy. I'm not sure. I can't recall exactly which street. But a guy in a pickup truck was stuck under the freeway, and it collapsed on him, and he, of course, died. And I Ooh. very vividly remember a picture in uh, one of the newspapers, and you can see his wrist watch on his wrist. And it's, the crystal is cracked, and the time is stopped at 6.01 or 3 or whatever time that happened in the morning. Mm-hmm. So since then, I've got a phobia about stopping under underpasses. Oh, uh, it's okay. my life. It's my life's mission. Never been caught under underpass of a red light, you know. Um, I'm almost to the point of driving driving on the other side of the street to avoid it. I haven't done that, but I would. Big, big difference <laughs> from Texas, right? The with the earthquake. Oh heck yeah! At least with tornadoes, yeah. well, you, you know, tornadoes or hurricanes, you get like a little bit of a warning. But earthquakes, they just come out of nowhere. <laughs> Yeah. Hey, by the way, while I was in Texas, uh, we didn't have them every year, but they were frequent, mm-hmm. uh, the hurricane thing. Ah, yeah. And I and I can remember in 1961, there was a hurricane called Carla, and uh, the wind was about 160 miles an hour. Ooh. And uh, it's several times louder than a freight train uh-huh. when you hear the wind blowing. It's unbelievable. And uh, there were eight, yeah, there were eight tornadoes spawned that night that uh, ravaged the city of Galveston. Wow! And um, yeah, yeah, eight tornadoes, eight in one night. Yeah, yeah it was nasty. And fortunately, our house uh, survived. I uh, had another friend that didn't live too far from us. His house was turned upside down with his entire family in it, mm-hmm. and uh, they got cut up pretty badly, but survived. But hurricanes were a constant threat uh, living on the Gulf Coast. And uh, to this day, I'm very much attuned to what's going on down there whenever it's, it's hurricane season because I still have family and, and friends down there. You know, I care about what happens to them. Right. And uh, that seawall I talked about only covered uh, a portion of that 39-mile length of the island. There's a portion of the island that they've developed with uh, new homes, uh, tract homes, and uh, custom-built homes that are unprotected. Mm-hmm. So uh, still a lot of people at, uh, at risk for hurricanes in Galveston. Do not, I repeat, do not buy on West Beach in Galveston. <laughs> That's just my personal, my personal opinion, okay? I'm sort of a weather junkie and really want to I really want to experience a hurricane. I'm probably one of the few, but like that interests me. I want to see a tornado in person to me. It like, it's fascinating how powerful mother nature can be. And tornadoes and hurricanes are two of the most impressive kinds of storms that you could ever see. Well, put it on your bucket list to uh, go to Arkansas or Mississippi, you know, one of those, Wonderful places. <laughs> I've I've looked into the tornado tours and yeah, they're they're a little pricey, but yeah, I I, I have looked into them already. Yeah, I'm a weather <laughs> channel buff. By the way, that's my favorite channel. <laughs> I love that. Channel. Uh, 
Yeah, even the, the truckers stuck up in the ice, ice, ice roads and all that stuff. You mm-hmm. know. Speaking, yeah, spe- but anyway. Speaking of TV, what else you got? Speaking of TV, yeah. have you been on TV? Uh, yeah, uh, several times. As a matter of fact, uh, back in the eighties, there was a TV show called Joker's Wild. Mm-hmm. Um, forgot how they played the, the game, but it was it was fun. There was another one called Million Dollar Chance of a Lifetime, mm-hmm. and we were well, my wife and I were seconds away and one answer away from uh, winning a million bucks. And then I went on another show back in the eighties called Dream House. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it used to be on NBC. And the host of that show was a guy named uh, Bob something. I forgot his name. But he used to be on Channel 5 doing the Rose, Rose Parade uh, commentary. Oh, Bob Eubanks. Yeah. Eubanks. Yeah, yep. that guy. Mm-hmm. That guy. Yeah. Anyway, we went on this show called Dream House, and you, you answered a bunch of iffy, in my opinion, uh, stupid questions, mm-hmm. uh, and you play the game, and if you wind up being a winner, you get a chance at the final grand prize, which is a house with a uh, fully furnished kitchen and living room, mm-hmm. and you had a choice of either uh, building the house uh, yourself, uh, you had to find out the, the property, mm-hmm. and they would put, put the house on, on the property. And they gave you money for the property, and uh, they built the house for not nothing, but nothing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we played the game, and um, turns out we won. Get out! So of here. We, yeah, we won a won a house, and you had a choice of either building it on your lot or taking a house that the builder is was putting up somewhere in a tract home in, in various neighborhoods or, or cities or whatever. And uh, unfortunately, when we did this, the only place that the building was building homes was in the uh, Reno Valley. And by that time, I was living in Canova Park, so Moreno Valley might as well have been needles as far as I was concerned. <laughs> it's still it's still a drive out there. <laughs> yeah, not really. Mm-hmm. But or or you oh and they also had Bakersfield. Bakersfield. Well, yeah, so Bakersfield being closer than Reno Valley, and I found out that uh, raw land in California uh, was a little bit more than I thought it would be, mm-hmm. and the numbers just didn't work out even with what the game show was giving us to purchase the land. Mm-hmm. So I decided to think uh, a pre a pre uh, house built by the uh, sponsor of the TV show. Mm-hmm. Uh, we chose Bakersfield. Uh, do you still have that house? No, we don't. Uh, uh, yeah, but uh, that was a good one for for the money. Besides the house, tell me a little more about uh, being seconds away from winning a million dollars. Yeah, as a matter of fact, we were. Um, the, uh, the game is called Million Dollar Chance of a Lifetime, and you guessed the letters and came up with the answers. And it's sort of like uh, Wheel of Fortune, but a little, little different format, but mm-hmm. involving letters and, letters and words and clues. And uh, we had, you know, of course, there's a time factor involved, and we made it to the last round or whatever, and 
we had to name uh, things with the lenses, like the lens in your glasses, uh, you know, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, the le- we, we, we named, I think, four of the five things that they wanted us to guess. Uh-huh. And seconds left, and I could not come up with the word, the obvious word, camera. It has a lens. Uh-huh. So um, the buzzer goes off, uh-huh. and we lose a million bucks oh. because I can't think of the word. Camera has a lens. Oh. Um, you know, we were thinking microscope and, you know, mm-hmm. telescope, you know, stuff like that, but couldn't come up with camera for some reason. I the you, mind's weird the way it works sometimes. Did you win anything on that show? Besides, I, I know you didn't win the million, but did uh, you at least get you like a we, we side prize? A, yeah, we won a few thousand. Okay. Um, we, we were on for several days. So you, you, you keep what you win, you know, each, each time. But uh get that meal. How did you end up on so many shows? My wife, Gloria, is a very fearless and aggressive woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, full of ideas. So uh, some day, one day she was watching a TV show and she saw the Dream House ad. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the show, they, you know, if you want to be a contestant on Dream House, contact, you know, and so she wrote the number down and um, she's a risk taker. So she convinced me, you know, let's go take a risk and do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, we took Anel and his uh, younger brother, Andrell, uh, down to uh, NBC Studios. And uh, I don't know if it's Burbank and on Buena, Buena Vista. Uh-huh. But they, that's where they taped the show. So they sat there and watched us uh, win the house. That is so but cool. She was, the, uh, she was the catalyst for most of the game show stuff she, that we went on. I went on Jerk Was Wild on my own. Uh-huh. Tried to get on tried to get on Jeopardy, but uh, I guess I didn't have enough smarts uh, to do that. Um, anyway, it got to the point where Gloria and I developed a relationship with some of the producers uh, of these TV shows. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a result, we had these uh, on-call part-time jobs to do pilot uh, shows. Mm-hmm. So we'd dress up and go down to the studios and we'd actually play whatever new game they'd come up with. And uh, the, the studios would try to, or the producers would try to sell the studios uh, the show. Mm-hmm. So we became professional game show um, makers or actors or whatever you want to call us. And we got paid bucks for that, you know. Uh-huh. And I guess at that time there was a limitation. Um, I don't know if it was legally or who, if it was an industry imposed limitation on how many times you could actually appear on TV or on a game show within a specific period of time. Mm-hmm. And whatever that was, we used it up so we were never able to go back on. Uh, uh, okay. Uh, I, think, I think it may have changed that now, but we we shot our wad and we had, we had one. That sounds pretty right. fun. That sounds like yeah, a lot yeah, of fun, actually. I've yeah, never yeah. been on a show. Um, don't make a fool of yourself, uh, Raul. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a couple more questions to ask you, and then uh, we can start wrapping some things up here. At what point in life, it could be an age or a time period, did you reach the I don't give a moment 
and stop caring about what other people thought? Um, that was a growing process. Uh, I've always been um, a critic of human kind. Mm-hmm. Um, it started at a young age when, again, with the racism thing, you know, I don't understand it. It makes no sense. And by the way, neither does of religion. I know a lot of people are going to frown when I say I'm an atheist, but it's a fact. Mm-hmm. But uh, as I got older, you know, I started just thinking uh, I'm just a speck on a blue ball in the middle of nowhere uh, of, of a common galaxy in a huge universe. Mm-hmm. And that you know, in the grand scheme of things, man, you know, I'm, I'm an amoeba. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a paramecium. I'm, I'm nothing, you mm-hmm. know. And uh, maybe that's a little bit cynical, but, you know, that's how I feel. I don't feel important. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel important only to the point that I'm important to other people and their love for me. But beyond that, I don't get too excited about the life thing. It's, it's a cycle, you know. Mm-hmm. Do you have any idea how many people are buried beneath us? Millions. Since humankind, you know? Mm-hmm. Anyway, I wind up being one of them, and so will you. And so I take that sort of attitude that none of this stuff really, really matters that much. Mm-hmm. Um, only to the point that uh, you want to survive, you know? I'll do what I have to do to survive, but uh, if things don't turn out my way, well, hey. At what age? No big deal. So, so you felt like this like your entire life, or was it like a certain uh, age that you reached it? It, it? it was a growing process from probably uh, second year in college, I guess. Okay. But I really became hardcore after I retired. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't worked since 2009. And how many years is that? Uh, 14 years? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So as a, as a result of that, I get to kick back and watch the world go by and develop um, theories, develop feelings, develop opinions about it all. Mm-hmm. And when I stop and think and philosophize, uh, I come up with that same conclusion that none of this stuff really, really matters. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. uh, Like I said, it sounds cynical, but that, that's how I am. But I, I don't get too excited about the whole life thing. I love my family and I wish them well, but uh, should you fall, uh, yeah, I do care. Yeah, I might cry, but uh, next day I'm okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, where so is... that to, to, to put a to put a definite number on what you're looking for, uh-huh. uh, whatever whatever age I was in 2009, that that was that seal, sealed the deal. That's when I really started the uh, it ain't important philosophy. Got it. Took Got it, it to the next level. Is there any place you'd still like to visit? Um, yeah, as a matter of fact, um, I wouldn't be too averse to going to Ecuador. Hmm. Any uh, reason why? Yeah, it's, um, um, it's quite affordable. Uh, the climate seems uh, agreeable to me. I, I hate cold weather. Mm-hmm. It's not humid. Um, it's, um, a relatively safe place. There are quite a few expatriates uh, from the U.S. living in Ecuador, mm-hmm. and it's a beautiful country. 
And the government is relatively stable. You know, there's not a lot of political or uh, drug violence. It's uh, just in case uh, people aren't aware, Ecuador, if you look at a map of South America, it's just north of uh, Peru Mm -hmm. on the Pacific coast of uh, South America. So that's not too far from Mexico and Panama, by the way. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I wouldn't mind living there. Uh, I also wouldn't mind living on an island off of uh, the Pacific coast of Panama, and it's called Taboga, T-A-B-O-G-A. No no cars at all. No cars. It's an island about me. Yeah, it's kind of like the relationship between L.A. and Catalina in terms of distance Uh on a boat. Uh, except Catalina does have motor, motorized vehicles. Uh, Taboga, the only thing allowed are bicycles and maybe the golf cart. And uh, beautiful, clear water. <laughs> yeah, you'd like it. It's it's the first time I ever was in an ocean and I could see my feet without any obscure, obs- being obscured. You know, the clear water thing, you know, like the Bahamas. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I can live there. Yeah. Uh, I also would mind going and checking out uh, either Israel or China. Nice. They, they might be pretty good places to go, especially China. I, I'm, I'm amazed about the, the building boom uh, that I see in pictures of uh, some of the major cities in China. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, and I grew up at a time when China was a uh, third or almost fourth world company country. And um, to see something to see it made in China, you know, oh, that's really cheap, you know. Mm-hmm. But now it's almost impossible to pick up anything that doesn't have a little sticker on it. Right. It says made in China. So anyway, I admire, I admire that country. Uh, it'd nice. be interesting to visit. Don't particularly like their, their politics, but mm-hmm. um, it, it works for them. So let them have it, you know, as long as they're halfway decent to their populace. Right, right. If you could include one thing in history books based on your own personal experience, what would it be? Uh, based on my own personal experience, um, that's a tough one. Hmm. Yeah, I've seen so much. Um, probably that I was fascinated with the moonshot. You know, the, the fact that we were able to go 240,000 miles plus and come back multiple times mm-hmm. uh, alive, you know, um, it speaks to how great technology is and how it advances sometimes very slowly and sometimes in leaps and bounds. By the way, let me speak to this real quickly. Mm-hmm. I'm unsettled on the question of UFOs, but I'm very interested in uh, unidentified aerial phenomena. Uh-huh. And I don't know if, it, if they're real or not. I tend to think that there's something there that, I don't know, it's, there's some unanswered questions, but I, that's another part of me that I uh, kind of look at this makes me not really give a guess if you know what I mean, yeah, about yeah. a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. We're not the only ones out here. We are in control, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, oh, and by the way, I also want to mention, give a shout out to my wife, Gloria. Uh, it's been over 50 years. I've kind of lost count now how many years I've been married. But uh, she's hung by me uh, through thick and thin. 
And despite our uh, differences, and differences I mean in terms of uh, belief, she's an avid uh, religious person and um, works very hard in her church. Uh, she's very giving and of her time. Uh-huh. And um, me, I'm basically a heathen, if you will. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. Uh, even though our beliefs or non-beliefs uh, clash, uh, we still make it work somehow. What's the What's the key there? What do you think makes it work so well? She doesn't bug me about it. I don't bug her about it. You know, it's it's sort of an unspoken rule we have. Um, if that's what you want to do, go for it. And every now and then, she might chide me a little bit uh, because it's with you, Christian. Sometimes it's hard not to say things that Christian people say in certain situations. Uh-huh. Uh, and I might. Uh, show disdain occasionally uh, for whatever her views are on something that she throws religion in my face about. But other than that, uh, you know, I dismiss it and she dismisses it and it's 50 some years later, so we must be doing something right. You know, you and the first guest on this podcast, Patricia Lay Dorsey, both said that the key to a long marriage is to kind of let the other person be who they are and don't try to change them. Don't get me wrong. She she's a she's a Latina mm-hmm. with uh, a fiery attitude, <laughs> and I'm not saying that she's thrown a flower pot at me once or twice. Wink, wink. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, she's human. Mm-hmm. But uh, we get along quite well. Quite well. On your Facebook page, there is a picture with uh, Gloria and Stevie Wonder. How did that happen? Well, the church that she attends is a very prominent uh, mega church uh, in L.A. Uh, on Crenshaw Boulevard. And uh, Crenshaw is sort of the, the west side center of the, the black uh, culture in, in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And um, I used to call it the church of the stars because uh, aside from Stevie Wonder, uh, Magic Johnson is also uh, a member mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of actors, the black actors that you see on TV and in the movies are also members. Mm-hmm. And uh, Gloria is uh, very personable and her job is the church at the church rather is uh, she's a manager of uh, the church facilities. Mm-hmm. And uh, in that role, she's uh, very close to the leadership of the church. Um, and this is, when I said mega church, I'm talking, well, at one time on the sea day, there might have been as many as 20, 25,000 people that were members. Wow. And, yeah, and uh, they eventually wound up building a uh, nice cathedral uh, in Los Angeles, uh, off of Exposition in Crenshaw. Mm-hmm. And um, spent, I don't know, 63 or $70 million building it back 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, it's uh, several hundred million in terms of work. Mm-hmm. But anyway, she, she uh, became uh, very good friends with the church leadership. And uh, they, in turn, were nationally known um, in the, uh, her denomination. And members of that denomination included uh, Stevie Wonder and uh, Magic and 
sometimes. Oh, and Denzel, he goes there too. Mm-hmm. Denzel Washington. And um, some other people. Like Angela Bassett, she's a good friend also. Uh-huh. And uh, there's some, some football players. Uh, it's like, that's Church of the Stars, I guess is yeah. what I call it. But anyway, her, her interaction with the pastor has uh, led her to interact and meet uh, a lot of a lot of celebrities, uh, even old Bill. Remember Bill Clinton? Bill Clinton went there. <laughs> well, no, he didn't go there, but uh, like visited. I think I got a few. Yeah, he visited, and he and Gloria are, are tight, you know, uh, <laughs> to a point. Uh huh. They don't. They're not pen pals, but uh-huh. they recognize each other when they see each other. So Very of course, cool. Bill is recognizable. Yeah, and like I said, she has a great personality. Uh huh. I have, and as an added benefit, as an added benefit, being from Panama, her first language is Spanish, mm. so uh, that creates a lot of interesting stories too. Uh, she can <laughs> eavesdrop on standing in line at a bank, and you know, two guys are standing behind her talking about her her butt <laughs> in Spanish. Uh-huh. <laughs> And so it, it's interesting to watch the people's reaction when she turns around and responds to them and says whatever she wants to to them. Oh, she I puts bet. them in their place. Uh-huh. Yeah, she puts, she puts them in their place. I'd yeah. love to see that one day. <laughs> yeah, it, it's just a riot. Uh-huh. And, and, and sometimes I, I, I hear them, and I say, I don't speak Spanish, but I understand. I, I do speak it a little bit. Uh-huh. But I understand it uh, relatively well. And so I'm hearing these guys, and I'm going, oh, I can see what's coming, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so she turns around and says something about their mother, and anyway, mm-hmm. it wasn't pleasant. It wasn't pleasant. <laughs> but the, the expression on their faces was, uh... Priceless. You know? Jaw drop. What should younger generations know about life that they don't know now? Well, obviously, uh, life is not, I want them to know that life is not static. Static means you stay as you are. Nothing changes. Everything remains the same. But life, uh, rather, is dynamic. So uh, whatever the situation is now, uh, good or bad, don't think it's going to be that way always. Uh, It'll change. And if you're a good person, most likely it will change for the better. Uh, Don't get down on yourself. Um, you have to discount a lot of opinions from other people. Uh, you may in your mind think their opinions are important, but again, in the grand scheme of things, they're not. Mm-hmm. So uh, take heart, take heart, and look toward the future, and be smart. Don't do don't do dumb stuff. If you do dumb stuff, dumb stuff happens to you. There it is, folks. Do dumb stuff. Dumb stuff will happen to you. Yeah, as the as the uh, phrase goes, S happens. Yep. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah. So well. I didn't want to get. I normally, if 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 um, I I picked up that I I shouldn't be my normal self relative to my language, mm-hmm. but um, I didn't want to turn this into an X-rated <laughs> discussion, <laughs> language-wise. There's an but, uh, I could be. A, there's an explicit option, I think, when I upload this, so it, it would have been fine, I think. Yeah, okay. All right. <laughs> well, you almost made me say something just now, but I won't. Okay. I can't believe it's already been two hours since we started talking, and there's so much more I want to ask you, but I also want to be respectful of your time. You've been an outstanding guest. 
who has been through a lot, but you still keep a positive attitude. I think we may need to do a part two, but for now, thanks for the memories, Leonard. You got it, man. I'll talk to you later. You take care and have an absolutely great uh, life. Thank you. You Not to mention a great great day, man. All right. Meantime, I'm going to go to Tommy's Hamburger and get a chili tamale. I'll talk to you later. Thanks for the memory of sentimental verse. Nothing in my purse and chuckles when the preacher said, for better or for worse. Thank you. Thank you so much.